You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Ned Barker, and today we have another industry stalwart in the APAC market. Chi Wei, welcome to the Innovations Podcast. Thank you, Ned. It's great to have you on. Chi Wei, as a, as a way of introducing yourself, um, how about you could, uh, if you could, sorry, um, just spend some time introducing yourself um, as somebody that is well known within the APAC market um, and just talk a little bit about your experience. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, my name is Chi Wei. So I am the country head uh, of the Singapore and also the vice president of Neo Banking for Instagram uh, within Neom. So Neom is the name of the company. Uh, many of you may have known us previously as uh, Instagram uh, when we first started uh, the company by our uh, co-founder Prajit Nanu uh, back in 2015. The focus back then was a lot on uh, supporting individuals and uh, and in some sense, uh, small businesses uh, to do cross-border payments in a more efficient and cost-effective way. Uh, and we did that by building our own payment mesh across the world. Um, taking an example of uh, a customer wanting to send money from Singapore to, let's say, Hong Kong. Uh, we have partners uh, in Hong Kong where uh, we integrate into their APIs leverage on their real-time payment infrastructure in the case of Hong Kong with the, the FPS um, and to disperse uh, funds uh, from a bank account within Hong Kong to another bank account in real time. So if you string out the whole journey um, of the customer initiating a transaction uh, through us uh, and funds us in Singapore to pay now in real time, we trigger the API to our partner in real time, the disbursement to the banks in Hong Kong real time, the whole journey can be fulfilled within minutes, if not seconds. That's the beauty and the power. Uh, we did all the hard plumbing uh, and uh, also from the regulatory side, uh, we have built the necessary red tag uh, to support this kind of instant payments uh, cross-border. And that's how we have replicated this, not just for Hong Kong, but across uh, the, the many countries uh, in the world. We can support more than 100 countries uh, and uh, I would say a good uh, 50 to 60% of them would be now real-time leveraging on the real-time payments. So through that payment mesh, we have also attracted a lot of uh, large corporates and even financial institutions uh, who uh, would still be using SWIFT, uh, uh, which uh, may not be the most ideal and cost-effective way. Uh, so they have looked upon us uh, to partner with us, leveraging our payment mesh uh, to support them in the cross-border payments. But the company has evolved. Our lines of business have expanded into card issuance. Uh, we are principal member of Visa and MasterCard. And we have also uh, offered like a collection service for our customer, uh, pay in and pay out. Um, and most recently, crypto as a service. Um, and the company has rebranded in uh, November 2019 as NIEM to focus on B2B banking as a service. But Instagram remains as a brand serving individuals and SME. It's our direct-to-consumer 
uh, for the case of SME, they will use the web. And in the case of uh, the individual customers, they will use both app and web, app or web, uh, to perform their cross-border payments. Uh, and for Singapore, we have also uh, launched our first uh, debit card uh, together with MasterCard that is uh, uh, targeted for travelers uh, who wants to save in FX. And it's a very differentiated product as compared to the many uh, multi-currency account cards in the market. So this is a, a bit of uh, background about our organization, what we do, who are our customers, uh, and uh, happy to share and talk about the Instagram side of the story in this podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And uh, a great way to introduce the podcast. And Chi um for those that don't know you or haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, could you just give us a bit of a background as to where you came from and how you kind of entered this market? I know you've been in the, in the market for a long time and perhaps how you, uh, you even came to you know, partner up with Instagram um, as your employer. Well, I've been in the market for, uh, short of reviewing my age, uh, two decades, uh, a good two decades. So I've seen the evolution uh, and I'm very thankful uh, that uh, since the start, I've been in financial services. Uh, I will say fast track uh, a bit more, uh, the closest uh, uh, relevance to all this uh, payments business would be when I was with uh, the Infocom Development Authority of Singapore, which is a government agency uh, that is uh, one of its charter is to spearhead the adoption of cashless payments uh, in Singapore. So from a policy point of view, from uh, the partnership with private sector, how can we encourage uh, adoption of NFC? Uh, but that was uh, easily like in the days of uh, 2019. Uh, I think the market weren't quite ready then, but, uh, but uh, uh, I rather say it's 2008, not even 2018, 2008. Uh, but I have the privilege to join subsequently Singtel uh, in 2012, uh, looking uh, to build a wallet-based uh, payment solution, a mobile uh, wallet-based payment solution uh, to, in conjunction uh, with uh, Standard Chartered Bank uh, back then. Uh, and you could imagine back then uh, it was uh, a, a landscape where there was no Apple Pay, no Google Pay, no Samsung Pay. So it was literally a blank sheet of paper uh, and our challenge back then was how to convince uh, consumers uh, to adopt e-payment and to to have to place trust on the mobile app uh, to make payments uh, because it's wallet based. They first have to top up the wallet with funds before they could spend it. Uh, but the, the, I think uh, those were really the pioneer days where we championed this, uh, not just for domestic payment but also uh, mobile remittance service. Uh, and I've certainly gained lots of experience in this space. Uh, subsequently, I have the privilege of joining this company, Niam. Uh, um, I mean, through uh, my interaction with uh, the co project, uh, our co-founder, uh, that inspired me that we can do a lot more. Uh, and uh, happy to say that uh, fast track uh, to now, uh, we have certainly made uh, an impact uh, to the landscape uh, and um, like, for example, the Amaze card is really the first of its kind in the Asia Pacific uh, that uh, is groundbreaking and I'm super proud about this. So all in all, I think uh, 
plenty of uh, interactions with different stakeholders, governments, private sector, payment companies, etc., telcos, uh, uh, and more importantly, the consumers. Uh, mm. Because uh, you also witness how the, uh, the, uh, the how much trust uh, have the consumers now expanded uh, on the mobile payments, which uh, back in 2012, there was literally zero trust. They don't even know about that till now. Mm. That, uh, at least in Singapore, and I'm, I'm sure uh, across the world, especially with the real-time payment uh, infrastructure that uh, many countries are offering that is in conjunction with a wallet and QR code, many of them, uh, and, and no thanks to COVID, they are comfortable with using mobile for payments. Uh, and I would say and happily say that uh, it's real time too. Yeah. And I guess it takes us quite nicely onto our, our first real talking point. You know, having such an illustrious career, particularly in, in payments and in real time payments, or at least seeing the evolution of the real time payments. What do you, where do you see uh, the current situation of real time payments in, in the APAC region? Um, and what have you noticed over the last, you know, let's say five to 10 years? Um, about the adoption of real-time payments? Um, I would say that uh, China had a good head start uh, when they first launched their real-time payments, uh, which is called the Internet Banking Payment System. Um, and that was uh, in 2010. Uh, but, and subsequently, uh, other APEC countries uh, have embarked on this journey uh, with Singapore launching fast in 2014. Um, India uh, with the UPI in 2016 uh, and followed by Thai Prompe 2017. Uh, I think it's a combination of the availability of uh, technologies that could do that um, and also the openness of uh, the regulators and central bank uh, in hope to improve um, the payment infrastructure. There are really many benefits uh, to do to support uh, and enable real-time payments, um, and not just for individuals, but also SME. Uh, ultimately, cash flow is important for many SMEs, and uh, the, the faster they could receive their payments through real-time, uh, the better they could manage their cash flow. Uh, and for the individuals, uh, more than just the infrastructure, uh, I would see that uh, increasingly there are also value-added services that can be built uh, on top of this real-time payment infrastructure, which uh, I'll talk a bit more uh, in, uh, in the subsequent uh, discussion or subsequent question uh, during this call. Um, but uh, let's just say uh, that the few countries that I mentioned sort of catalyze um, and uh, impress upon the other nations uh, the benefits of real-time payment system um, and that many of them are actively uh, considering. Uh, I believe uh, at the stands, we would have easily 50 to 60 nations across the world uh, that uh, have already adopted real-time payment infrastructure. And, and I'm quite interested in this point specifically because as a comparison in the UK, for example, or even in Europe, you know, there is still some skepticism, I think, for using the real-time payment infrastructure that we have uh, for, for a number of different reasons. I think user adoption maybe in the older generations is, is one of them. Uh, for mm. example, open banking is still is still quite frowned upon. Right. Do you feel that right. actually in, in the APAC region, 
uh, that, that's kind of almost been bypassed and that the adoption is a, is a necessity to do trade, to do, to do business, to send payments to each other? I would, uh, in my view, it depends on how you uh, implement the real-time payment system. Uh, it doesn't need to be so radically different from how uh, customers are used to, or individuals are used to doing bank transfer um, from account to account. Uh, uh, of course, many of them would have launched um, a mobile like wallet uh, or enable mobile wallet providers to adopt a real-time payment infrastructure. Uh, but for those, uh, if it's a matter of convincing uh, and changing habits of those who are used to do a bank-to-bank transfer, uh, albeit that may take two days, uh, it's a matter of letting them know there's new payment infrastructure. Uh, and I believe many uh, of this nation, when they roll out the service, it's, uh, it's FOC. Uh, and it's a faster way for them to transfer payments. So it's, it's not very different from what they are already doing, uh, even when they do, like in the case of Gyro, Singapore, uh, in Singapore, they do a Gyro, which will take two days. It's the same information. Um, although, uh, Maybe one adjustment that they have to be aware is uh, the virtual payment address. So instead of having to pay to a bank account, uh, now all they need to know is uh, paying to the beneficiary's uh, proxy information, which could which is typically in the form of a mobile number or and or a national ID number, uh, mm. which I believe the former is more popular and. If a customer can, knows how to set up and specify a bank account of the beneficiary, there's no reason why uh, they would have a challenge trying to put in the mobile number. Uh, I, and I'm sure they will remember the mobile number of uh, the person they are paying, especially if they are a close uh, um, relative or, um, or family member of theirs uh, than the bank account. So they could start with this. And uh, once the... the uh, people are more comfortable with that arrangement. They could expand it uh, together with uh, the banks and other private sector to enable wallet uh, where uh, they could be sort value facility, use their mobile, scan QR code, uh, pay to merchants. Um, and detail for SMEs. Um, I'm sure SMEs who want to collect payments will be happy to embrace that. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, the COVID when contactless payment, uh, which uh, one would argue that uh, it's not new, the, the cards, contactless infrastructure have been there uh, for ages, uh, but uh, the cost associated with that is high and having the ability to pay with a QR code through a real-time payment infrastructure is a lot more cost uh, effective for these merchants uh, and hence their uh, interest uh, in adopting during COVID. So it has certainly helped to spur uh, the usage um, and through some government push, um, I, I, and I believe the numbers speak for themselves, a uh, dramatic increase of uh, real-time payment, uh, particularly in the uh, places like India, China, Philippines uh, during COVID. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And, you know, I, I guess COVID, um, has a direct correlation to obviously, as you say, the the number of people that were paying using their mobile devices, for example. Um, you know, a lot of places in the UK now don't even accept cash as a result of it. Uh, 
but also an amazing way for people who are unbanked to get access to financial services. You know, like in India, where you might not have a somebody that can actually go into a physical branch to do their banking, but they have a mobile phone, so they can actually go, yep. you know, uh, download an app, and yep. they can have access to you know global markets, global currencies. You know, just through one through one application. It's a really interesting yeah, point, and actually, that's a further evolution uh, because usually. Uh, most nations will start with banks, so it's still pretty much bank-to-bank transfer. But as the innovation comes in, as they open up to non-banks, that's where the wallet play uh, comes in. And uh, and thanks to uh, the likes of ATM and uh, the many many innovative wallet solutions in, um, in various nations, especially in India and China, uh, a wallet-to-wallet transfer using uh, real-time payment infrastructure is possible. And it has certainly helped to spur uh, the adoption more. Uh, and to your point, for those who may not uh, necessarily have bank accounts, um, especially in the large geographies uh, and rural settings, uh, uh, I think mm-hmm. that's a very strong use case for those customers. Yeah. And so with the rise of digital payments, with the rise of real-time payments, with the rise of people using their devices rather than physically going into branches, the inherent risk is that you know people can be scammed. Um, you know, and, and fraud is is definitely on the rise in the UK, um, particularly throughout the COVID um, pandemic that we've just experienced. And I'm interested to just talk a little bit about um, your opinion on whether you believe that fraud is on the rise uh, in the APAC markets and potentially how we could combat fraud. Um, what are your feelings on on the adoption of, of real time payments and the uh, the rise of fraud within within that market? That's a very relevant question, and I don't think it's uh, specific to just real time payments, but in general, whether it's card payments uh, or a bank transfer or the many uh, scam SMS in there where a customer. Uh, trick to lock in with their bank credentials uh, and uh, the fraudsters uh, use the opportunity to uh, to empty the bank accounts. Uh, it, the real-time payment may help to uh, expedite that, but it's not necessarily the contributor uh, to many of these scams and frauds. Um, I would sort of relate the, our experience in this space, uh, albeit that it's not... Uh, so much on real-time payments per se, uh, but on uh, our remittance service, that, uh, which I mentioned in the earlier example, that we p- partner with other financial institutions to leverage on their real-time payments infrastructure. Uh, and at times that we do direct integration with the real-time payment infrastructure to enable this cross-border payments. So I can share that uh, in our experience, uh, certainly fraud, uh, cases has been on the rise, uh, but uh, it's also our ability as a fintech to uh, leverage on the, the newest technology uh, from the many rag techs out there. Uh, while the fraudsters are uh, advancing in the level of sophistication, uh, likewise, uh, you also have rag techs who are uh, putting in tons of R&D uh, to improve on the way they do the KYC of our customer, the way they do transactional monitoring, 
do the way they do the risk management um, and also the way they cover the cyber security uh, of the devices. So these are uh, potentially partners that, uh, and some of which we are already using uh, to minimize. But of course, uh, no tech is uh, fail-proof, um, much as this would uh, help in terms of artificial intelligence. The human intelligence is still necessary, uh, but uh, how we can do it better than many uh, organizations and, and banks included uh, is the smarter way we do things uh, and um, to reduce the number of false positives so mm -hmm. that uh, we can better handle the load uh, and be able to uh, allow a faster turnaround time uh, for the transactions. Yeah, um, And that's for the remittance, but on uh, the, kite, the cards payments, I think this this is a long long standing um, feud between those who are within the instant payment networks and the card payment networks. Um, you know which one is safer, which one is is prone to less or more fraud. Uh, having worked in both industries yeah. myself, uh, I tend to be on the side of the consumer, uh, and I'm, I mm. would I, I wouldn't give up this opportunity to say that I think that the card payment um, infrastructure is actually safer in terms of um, protecting the consumer. I think a lot of people mm. don't actually know. The, the level of protection that they have when when they pay on a card. However, um, for the businesses, you know, it poses a much larger issue about you know the cost of fraud. Um, yep. You know, particularly with chargebacks, particularly with people who are committing friendly fraud. And so there's there's this ongoing mm. dispute where maybe maybe real time payments, maybe instant payment networks yeah. are actually better yeah. for the for the businesses, yeah. but haven't quite got it right for the consumers yet. So it'd be really yeah. interesting to see say... how that develops. Yeah, I would say uh, there needs to be close collaboration with law enforcement agencies. Uh, we view them as uh, as our good ally uh, because uh, the, those would be intelligence that we can share with the law enforcement agencies. Uh, I mean, vice versa, uh, so that we understand what the trend is, uh, understand any hot spots, um, and also. Uh, working together with them to educate. So to your point, uh, many of the customers may not know uh, how to identify uh, scams and fraud um, cases. So it's also about uh, running campaigns uh, to let them know that uh, and how to spot uh, such likely situation and what should they do uh, should those uh, situations arise. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of ironic, really. It's like the, the, the more that real-time, or not even real-time payments, the digital payments and real-time payments are adopted, you know, the more fraud seems to be um, happening because people are using physical, uh, sorry, they're using digital versions of, of payment rather than physical. But actually, yeah. you know, the more people use digital payments, you know, the more educated people become and the more easy it is to, to actually spot these false positives, to be able to spot phishing, for example. And the more educated mm. people generally get. You know, I, I've got yeah. friends who are only now you know, five or six or seven years later, starting to use um, digital payments through a wallet rather than just you know using a physical card, uh, mm. and it, it's quite it's quite strange to me because having been in this this world for the last you know seven or eight years, I'm it, it seems alien not to, to to do things digitally. But you know, yeah. I think there's still still a long way to go, yeah. particularly in in in, in Amir. But I, I guess in the APAC market, there seems to be more evolved in turn and more more adoption. In, um, for digital payments with the mm -hmm. likes of um, Alipay and WePay yeah. in, in, in China. 
Yeah, with the I'm sure everyone goes through, uh, and each provider will have gone through uh, the whole journey. Uh, when they first launch the product, they will monitor the level of uh, fraud activities. They will tighten the process. Uh, and in the case of cards, uh, a lot of uh, dependency also on the card issuer uh, and their uh, systems that were uh, that they put in place, which we put as the issuer leverage on. Uh, to identify these uh, this suspicious transactions. Uh, and, but to a point, I'm not surprised that uh, with the adoption of digital payments, uh, it's also increased because with the proliferation uh, of uh, digital payments, uh, the general public, uh, the, the likes of our, uh, our parents, uh, they would start using, uh, and they may not be that familiar uh, with um, those uh, signs um, that they should watch out for. So it's therefore very important uh, that we don't assume everybody is savvy <laughs> enough to know what uh, and what are the scams, uh, what appears uh, as a valid uh, SMS uh, with a hyperlink in there uh, would be a dangerous uh, activity for you to click. So uh, like in the case of Singapore, I think the, the police uh, force has... Um, has educated the public together with banks, etc., that how to identify uh, those foreign incoming numbers who claim that they are from the Ministry of Health or Ministry of Finance, that you need to lock in with your bank credential in order to pay certain penalties. Uh, those are the education that they constantly play in different channels, radio, and uh, the papers, and on the media, uh, online, so that everyone, uh, whether it's from the youth, uh, to the adults, uh, to uh, the senior citizens, uh, they have the kind of knowledge to be aware and to deal with it. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And, uh, you know, hopefully adoption becomes, you know, the norm rather than having to be yeah. a, a really large piece of education, yeah. but I think there's still a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As an op used to say to me, uh, he the, they, they, up until very recently, we're still using ZipSap machines to take card details. So, um, yeah. Just moving on slightly from the doom and gloom of, of, of fraud, although it is an important topic. Um, obviously, with the with, with the kind of the end of the pandemic in sight, the globe is kind of opening up a bit more for both travel and um, and, and migration of people. Where where do you sit with uh, the, the the newest sources of growth for, for the APAC region um, generally? I mean, I know it's quite a broad. Uh, broad topic of conversation, but what, what are you most excited about in terms of um, the new sources of growth in, in, in the APAC region? Mm. So I will cover from a few aspects. Um, one is from an uh, instrument point of view uh, and how we intend to grow in our remittance and our cards and uh, the, even the new bank business. Uh, from a remittance perspective, uh, very important is the speed and customer experience. I think this are uh, the key factors now that we have our fundamentals uh, in place uh, is how do we constantly improve, uh, tap onto more real-time payment because uh, every uh, every few months there would be uh, the life, uh, go live of a new RTP, the real-time payment infrastructure uh, by some countries. Uh, so we would be keen uh, to embrace and integrate into as many of them as possible. Uh, and also the growth uh, in the way we pay out uh, 
make payouts for remittance, uh, not longer it's only to bank or cash pickup, but also increasingly to e-wallets. Um, I mean, the, uh, the receiving countries such as the Philippines and Indonesia uh, the, and even like uh, Vietnam, uh, there has been uh, the rise of uh, users using those e-payment uh, and digital wallets uh, that uh, we would want to see how uh, those funds can be sent into those wallets. From the card issuance point of view, uh, so these are, I would think, the growth areas that we should strive uh, to work. Um, and one angle that I do see that uh, is impacting and has relevance to the global economy is what I call as the three RS, uh, the restlessness, the recession, the retrenchments, and the stagflation. Um, uh, as we all know, winter uh, has come early, um, and uh, if not round the corner, um, that uh, uh, in general, uh, the economy, uh, the economies across the world are not doing well with the disruption in value uh, in supply chain, uh, with the high inflation. Uh, a lot of the customers are very apprehensive, um, and uh, they and that would mean that all the more they would seek value uh, with their financial service provider. Uh, no longer are they acceptable with uh, like banks charging three percent for FX spend on their cards. Uh, they will look for providers out there who would uh, give them the same service offerings. Um, and at a much uh, attractive uh, price point uh, and with a lot more relevant value add uh, for the amount of uh, transactions they are doing. So uh, we see this uh, value seekers, uh, increasing number of value seekers in this uh, difficult times, but in play, it will play in our favor uh, because uh, we think we are in a position uh, to do things better, faster, cheaper, uh, for many of these customers. Uh, and for SMEs, um, besides uh, cost savings, uh, because of the global supply chain disruption, um, they would be looking um, at alternative uh, providers, uh, suppliers uh, in different parts of the world that they may not have traditionally dealt with. Um, and that would mean that they would need uh, providers, uh, cross-border payment providers, uh, who are able to cover a broader set of geographies than uh, what they used to do. Um, and that's something that uh, would drive the growth for many companies looking to expand the network of uh, countries uh, and even more exotic countries uh, that uh, SMEs may want to pay to. Uh, and based on our research, uh, based on the research by Juniper uh, Research, it shows that the B2B payments globally are predicted to rise to 35 trillion by 2022, which is a 30% jump uh, from 2020. Uh, and I do believe that in spite of all these um, difficult times, uh, the momentum will still keep pace, uh, albeit that uh, many businesses will seek uh, further value and we review who their financial service providers are to make sure that they can maximize the uh, the value of their partnership. Very, very interesting. Uh, very interesting. Uh, there's a couple of points I wanted to pick up on actually in there. One of them is around kind of collaboration, which which 
is a really interesting point for for uh, companies accessing so companies specifically like like Instagram, but also like Currency Cloud. I think it's it's not uh, it's not a secret that Instagram and Currency Cloud have been partners for a long time, and um, and uh, I think these symbiotic relationships are so important to leverage the expertise of 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 the companies. So you know, in a, in an area where one uh, company might be uh, lighter on the ground, for example, um, they can offer their services to um, other fintechs who are ultimately have the same goal to help help the, the customer at heart. So it's a really interesting point that, you, that you've raised, particularly about working with banks and regulators. And I, I don't think it's any different anywhere in the world where the banks are getting stuffier. Um, they're not they're more reluctant to change and, and to develop and that's where the likes of mm. currency cloud the likes of instagram are coming in and, and helping mm. almost mm. speed that process up by offering these mm. more up-to-date technologies so now i would uh, say the the central banks are also working together uh talking about collaboration and driving the growth of real time uh, it's no longer just domestic uh, growth domestic payments growth but how the different central banks can work together to integrate the real-time um, payment infrastructure uh, to allow interoperability. Um, case in point would be the recent spate of announcement uh, from the Monetary Authority of Singapore uh, together with the Thailand the Central Bank on uh, the linkage of uh, the Singapore Pay Now and PromPay. Um, I think this is a fantastic move. Uh, and this is just one instance because uh, soon after that, uh, there have been announcements on partnership uh, with uh, India, UPI, and also more recently with uh, Malaysia, do it now. Uh, I think that's a tremendous uh, benefit uh, that uh, uh, when the regulators and the central banks are behind that effort uh, to support more seamless uh, cross-border payments, uh, it would benefit the consumer. But as of now, uh, my only fear is that uh, this, uh, the benefit of this cross-border has only been um, availed to banks. So i.e. you can only use uh, banks that are participating in this service uh, to write on this uh, inter-RTP uh, for cross-border payments. And, uh, and unfortunately, banks are still not giving uh, very decent and attractive rates uh, um, to customers. Um, so I do hope that uh, while the central banks are collaborating together, uh, it, this are national infrastructure that should not be only exclusive to banks, but also an opportunity for fintechs uh, to partake and to write on this so that we can also uh, leverage this uh, real-time payment reels uh, that is established uh, by the central banks uh, and and the collaboration of central banks uh, to as uh, additional rail for us to serve our customers uh, and uh, and typically through these rails it will be even more cost effective uh, than through the banks um, and I think it's also important for them to do so uh, because uh, while banks are getting more innovative, I'm sure. Uh, with the fintechs uh, joining in the ecosystem, uh, we can come in to build more interesting use cases. Uh, and, and when I mean fintech, it did not be payment companies. It could be uh, an example of an insurance company uh, that where the uh, 
the insurer, the insured can raise a claim uh, triggered through a blockchain smart contract uh, that automatically uh, runs through the ne uh, necessary validation by the insurance company and initiate a real-time payment uh, to pay out the claims uh, to the customer's uh, proxy, which is a virtual payment address, which to be the mobile number of NRIC, and it's in real time. So it saves a lot of uh, uh, manual processes, uh, but it requires uh, this uh, non-banks uh, to have the opportunity to try out this kind of use cases in, the, in this national infrastructure. Um, but this is just one example. I'm, I'm sure uh, with all the fintechs and uh, and other financial service companies uh, leveraging on real time, there are so much more um, use cases that we could build upon it. One other use case that I'm very keen uh, to see it happening uh, would be the request for payment. So uh, right now, the, what we have seen, majority of them are push payment, uh, where the the customer the sender initiates um, and um, with the payment to the beneficiary. Uh, but the, I would certainly love to uh, write on the infrastructure to also build the value added on top of RTP to request for payment uh, where the person collecting from uh, another could, uh, could trigger those APIs uh, and be able to raise the request for payment. And you mentioned about open banking. So uh, that's been in the works for, I think, a couple of years. I think easily five years and, uh, and beyond. Uh, I, I think it's uh, progressing steadily. Um, and, and I'll say UK is uh, certainly uh, in very advanced stages of open banking, needs to be driven by the regulator um, and, um, and uh, availing the RTP infrastructure and having APIs um, support for the fintechs and the banks to write on those APIs to, to build applications on top of it. Uh, through the open access API, uh, I would deem it as uh, equally important. Yeah, I'm, I mean, the open banking use case is is very interesting uh, in, in a lot of ways. It has a lot of really amazing use cases, particularly in in the markets that, that we specialize in. My, my, my feeling at the moment is that, um, you know, there hasn't been enough done to really, really drive home the, the use cases. For someone like myself, actually investing in things like, you know, if I want to put money into my ISA, for example, it's a lot easier mm. to do it using open mm. banking because you can immediately see it, you know, debited and credited. Uh, it's actually quite yeah. frustrating having to to now physically take my wallet out, you know, entering it, entering a card uh, number and and sort yeah. code and things like that. I feel less safe, you know, entering in my CVV, for example, uh, into a, into an app. Then I would just, you know, doing it all through my 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 open bank my my bank account through open banking. So um, I think that's definitely one one to watch out for. Um, yeah. So so Chiwai, just as we wrap up, um, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, it's been a really insightful conversation, um, and uh, we look forward to hosting you again on on the innovation podcast in in the future. Thank you once again for the opportunity. I hope that uh, some of my point of view. Uh, would be of value to the listener uh, and uh, do ping me and happy to reach out uh, uh, together with Currency Cloud uh, that we can explore and spark some interesting ideas. Thank you very much, Chiwai. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.